Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Love and marriage, love and marriage It's an institute you can't disparage Ask the local gentry And they will say it's elementary Try, try, try to separate them It's an illusion Try, try, try and you will only come To this conclusion Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage Dad was told by mother You can't have one, you can't have none You can't have one without the other separate them it's an illusion try 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 and you will only come to this conclusion love and marriage love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage that was told by mother you can't have one You can't have one without the other. Love and Marriage was released by Frank Sinatra seven years before I was born in 1955. It's a two-minute song which really packs a wallop. Once you've heard it, you can never forget it. How many two-minute songs have accomplished this much? I can't think of any. This song sets the stage for today's episode, which I call Love and Marriage, and for my conversation later with someone I consider to be a true expert on the subject, David Feldman. I'll tell you more about David a little later, but for now, I'd like to tell you why I decided to devote an episode to the subject of marriage in the first place. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, One of my all-time favorite Thomas Sowell books is his 1980 classic, Knowledge and Decisions. I've said this before, and I'll say it again now. Do yourself a favor and buy this book, and not only read it, but study it. This is one of those Sowell books you can never really own. You merely look after it for the next generation. Anyway, I was rereading a section of that book. And there's a little story in the book about two farmers working on one plot of land. Sowell is using that story mostly to make a point about economics and how different inputs can lead to different outputs. Upon first reading, 
it sounds kind of dry and technical and of limited value for the layman. But when I was rereading the story recently, it occurred to me that this story about two farmers working one plot of land was a terrific metaphor for the institution of marriage, and that the story really explains in a conceptual way why people even get married in the first place. So I'd like to play this story for you today, and I'll pause the story here and there to add some of my own commentary when I think it's helpful. Let's jump right in. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, here's Thomas Sowell and the story of two farmers. A lone man farming a vast expanse of land has a limited number of options as to how he will work this land. He may spread his labor thinly all over the whole land area, spending a substantial part of his workday walking over this area instead of actually tilling the soil, or he may decide that he will get more total output by cultivating only half of the land, putting more intensive labor there, and cutting back on the amount of his walking from place to place letting more of his energy go into the actual cultivation. Which of the two approaches he will use will depend on how the various considerations balance out in the individual case. Sowell sets the stage for his story by describing a lone man trying to farm a large tract of land. He describes two basic alternatives the man faces. He can either work the whole large plot of land in a superficial way, or he can decide to work just a small parcel of that land in a more focused and intense way. Now, which choice will grow more food? The answer is not clear, and this farmer will have to weigh the two alternatives and make a choice. Sowell continues. The point here is merely to illustrate the kinds of options he has as a lone farmer, input, which can be compared to the options when there are two units of the same input, that is, two farmers on the same land. While one farmer could either cultivate the whole land area as one unit or cultivate half the area and leave the other half uncultivated, two farmers have the option of cultivating all the area as a unit or cultivating both halves as separate units. That is, two farmers can either do what one farmer would have done or can, in addition, do things which one farmer could not have done. Sowell introduces a second farmer into the picture, and he explains that two farmers have a different set of options from one farmer working alone. The two farmers can either work the whole plot of land together, or they can decide to each work half the land separately. Sowell continues with some concrete examples. This is true also in the details of the work. For example, in transporting small objects into an area out in the field, Two farmers may choose either to carry them or to throw them to one another. A single farmer has only the first option. In carrying heavy and or awkward loads, one farmer is limited to getting grips in two places no further apart than the span of his arms. Two farmers working together can get two sets of grips with each set being much further away than one person's arm span. In short, Within a range of work activities, two farmers have all the options available to one farmer, plus some other options as well. How often they will choose to work separately, and how often as a team, depends upon what the advantages are in practice. The crucial point, however, is that more options generally mean better results, where the larger number of options includes all the smaller number of options. 
This principle has wide applications within economics and beyond economics, as will be seen in later discussions. If you have ever needed to move a large sofa, you know exactly what Sowell is talking about here. Imagine being alone and wanting to move your sofa from your living room, out the front door, down the steps, and into a moving truck. Good luck doing that alone. It's literally impossible. But two people can easily accomplish this task, even if neither one is that strong. Why? Because as Sowell said, In carrying heavy and or awkward loads, one farmer is limited to getting grips in two places no further apart than the span of his arms. Two farmers working together can get two sets of grips, with each set being much further away than one person's arm span. Keep this image in mind. It's conceptually very powerful. You, as an individual, are limited by the span of your arms. Two people break free of the arm span limitation, which is a quantum leap into a whole other dimension of possibilities. I think you are starting to see why Sowell's story about two farmers made me think of the institution of marriage, even though I don't think Sowell was thinking of marriage when he wrote this over 40 years ago. When two people get married and commit to merging their lives in this way, they face two basic options. One option is that they can each till their own separate plots of land and keep separately the spoils of their labor. Or they can jointly work one larger plot of land and share in the spoils equally. I know many couples, both married and unmarried, who move in together and they continue their lives in pretty much the same way as before they moved in together. He has his job and career and she has her job and career. They both earn money and they keep it in separate bank accounts. When they go on vacation, they split it. If he wants to give $200 to his nephew, he just does it, and he doesn't need to consult with his wife about it, because it's his money and he can spend it how he likes. You get the picture. I think we all know people who have chosen this path. Let's see where Sowell takes us next. In the case of two farmers on a large tract of land, they can each do whatever one farmer could do, and together they can do things that neither could do alone. In the absence of offsetting problems, we would therefore expect two farmers to produce more than twice the output of one farmer on the same ample expanse of land. In short, we may expect a rising output per unit of the input. For similar reasons, we might expect three farmers to also increase output more than in proportion to the increased input, since more elaborate organization of the inputs is now possible. How long the output would increase more than in proportion to the input would depend upon many specific facts, but what is important here is why it could not continue increasing this way forever. Beyond some point, the land would become crowded with people and their getting into each other's way and distracting one another's attention would begin to offset the organizational advantages. Sowell is saying that two people can produce more than twice the amount that one person can produce alone, and that three people can produce more than three times the amount of one person alone. But at some point, adding more people will not add to the total output, because they will start to get in each other's way. I'm just spitballing here, and I haven't completely thought this through. But if we want to stick with the marriage metaphor, 
I'm wondering if it gets at the concept of polygamy. Traditionally, polygamy has meant one man with multiple wives. And there are clear biological reasons why that direction of polygamy is more common than the other way around. I mean, a woman can only have one pregnancy at a time, but a man is not limited by sequential offspring. Enough said. I'm wondering if long historical experience has shown that two is the ideal number of people in a marriage, and that already, starting with three people, they start to get in each other's way, and diminishing returns kicks in. Like I said, I'm just spitballing here, not coming to any definitive conclusions. Anyway, enough of my musings. Let's get back to the real genius on this podcast. If the two farmers had been sharing the output as partners, they would, automatically, and perhaps even without thinking about it, have been monitoring each other's work, reducing the prospects of one's taking it easy at the expense of the other. The ease of monitoring and the certainty of being monitored would guard against the level of effort falling below the two farmers' own best judgments of the balance between ease and output. But when the number of farmers reached a hundred, no single farmer could equally easily watch the other ninety-nine, nor would each farmer be equally sure that his relaxations of effort would be detected by the others. Even if all one hundred farmers had identical notions of how much output was worth how much effort, each farmer individually would have an incentive to put forth less than this effort, since his own individual shortcomings would have very little relationship to his own individual share of the output. They might all know, in an abstract sort of way, that the total effort was related to the total output, and so all might desire to keep everyone's performance up to par, but there is a great difference between this desire, even if universally shared, and an organizational way of achieving it. At the very least, devising and maintaining an organized system of monitoring cannot be free, and whether it would repay its cost is an empirical question. Monitoring costs, either the costs of monitoring or the loss of output if not monitored, are an additional factor offsetting the possibilities of rising output per unit of input. If you've already listened to episode 30 about the Cold War, you will remember I discussed Sowell's concept of who monitors the monitors. There's an old Latin phrase for this concept, which translates as who watches the watchman. This concept of monitoring the monitors is a very important concept to Sowell, and it plays a key role in his understanding of how things work in the real world. One of the crucial advantages of a two-person marriage is that each person monitors the performance of the other person, and each person knows that they are always being monitored by the other person. While this might seem oppressive at first blush, I think both people would agree that this informal monitoring arrangement does tend to bring out the best in both parties in the long run. The original assumption that larger numbers of people meant additional options without an offsetting loss of other options is only approximately true for small numbers of people. Crowding, distraction, and monitoring costs offset the gains made possible by cooperative organizational work. As more and more inputs are added, beyond some point, the negative factors outweigh the positive advantages, and there is a falling ratio of output to input. This is the law of diminishing returns. 
a basic economic principle with implications that go far beyond economics. I'll end this section about the two farmers with Sowell digging a little deeper into the concept of diminishing returns, which is always a key concept to keep in mind with everything you do. Sowell says this, The law of diminishing returns applies to inanimate inputs as well. Although some amount of fertilizer on the land may have a small incremental effect on the size of the crop, and twice as much may cause the increment to be more than twice as great, beyond some point more fertilizer no longer increases the crop in equal proportions, and it is even possible to reduce the crop with excess fertilizer. This concept reminds me of all the many government programs which are designed to fix this or that quote-unquote social problem and which sometimes seems to make things worse, like putting too much fertilizer into the soil can reduce the size of the crop. As Sowell once famously said, Our national problems usually do not cause nearly as much harm as the solutions. The comparison of government programs to fertilizer is all the more apt, given that both are often made with the same raw materials. I'd like you to consider Sowell's story about two farmers working one plot of land, as a powerful metaphor for the institution of marriage. Two people come together to jointly work one plot of land. Why? Because they believe that as partners, they can work the land more productively than either of them alone. But what exactly does the land represent in this metaphor for marriage? I believe that the land represents family, and it represents children. Two people come together to create a new family, with children and ultimately with grandchildren as well. This is the main purpose of their union. And as anyone who has raised children will know, it's a huge undertaking, and one which is supremely difficult to accomplish on your own. A single parent is extremely limited by his or her own arm span, to borrow from Sowell's farmer story. Two sets of arms and two brains, open up countless more options and opportunities for managing the family. Of course, in a marriage, each person provides the other with many things which go beyond raising a family, companionship being the number one thing. Loneliness is real, and marriage is a way to solve that long-term problem. But you don't need a spouse to have companionship. Friends and an active social life can fulfill that need. I make the case that the prime reason for getting married is to raise children and create a new family where there was none before, totally out of thin air, so to speak. That's the plot of land that is being tilled by our two farmers and nothing else. That's my contention anyway. You know, I've been watching the Netflix series lately called Indian Matchmaking. I'm not a big TV watcher, And reality TV is definitely not my cup of chai. But I really like this show. Check it out sometime if you can. It's about a matchmaker from Mumbai, India, who is world famous in the Indian community for her matchmaking prowess. She swoops in from India to London, New York, Miami, and all the other places around the world where Indians have settled. And she helps single men and women of Indian descent find the perfect match. She listens carefully to what her clients say they are looking for in a partner, and she tries to find them what they want. Tempered, of course, with a dollop of realism, 
a splash of compromise, and sprinkled with a dash of matronly wisdom. They call her Seema Auntie, and here she is. In India, Naraji is a very big industry, a very big fat industry. we don't say arranged marriage. There is marriage and then love marriage. The marriages, they are between two families. The two families have the reputation and many millions of dollars at stake. So the parents guide their children and that is the work of a matchmaker. Congrats, I'm Seema Mami. Hi darling, Badayo. I'm Seema Taparia. I'm Mumbai's top matchmaker. My profession is based on goodwill. Hi, Kakiji. Hi, Pooja. Hi. I like to meet people in the airport or in the market or in the mall or anywhere. I'm Seema Mami. I'm a matchmaker for many families. Bangkok, Hong Kong, America. It's just a word of mouth. India matching for 135 families. The clients say that we have a son or a daughter and we want a good match. Hi. Hi, Seema. Hi, Seema. Rohit Trivedi here. Welcome. Seema Taparia from Mumbai. Hi, how are you? So I go personally, I fly, meet them. Come, we can see his room? Yeah. I visit their house. This is my kitchen. I see their lifestyle. I see the nature of the girl or a boy. What we have in the aquarium which suits you basically when you're eating. And what type of criteria and preferences they have. Someone who's nurturing adjustment is also important. The clients, they want everything. Equal to my pay or, or higher. Someone charming, but not too charming, because I like to be the charming one. <laughs> okay. Do you think anybody's there out there as a match for him? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking. <laughs> we all know that India has a centuries-old tradition of arranged marriages, while we in the West cling to our idea of so-called love marriages. One of my favorite parts of the show is meeting the parents of the single men and women who are looking for partners and hearing their stories of arranged marriages and how, from humble beginnings, they grew to love and respect each other while in the process of raising families. Here's one couple. Initially, we didn't even meet each other. It was his grandfather who had met me at a wedding. So they told me, like, uh, she bakes good cakes. So go and see. At least go and try the cake. Anybody who sees her will just fall for her. Okay. So it was like, okay, it was, boss, she's the one. So he was the lucky one, that's all. <laughs> Plus, I liked him, so. Oh, you never told me actually you liked me. Anyway, this is the first time she's actually admitted she likes me. Yeah. All that she used to tell me during the courtship days was that she used to make me jealous. You know, I had lots of people who were proposing to me and I selected you. Why did I select you when I had the bloody world at my feet? What's your favorite thing about Cakes that she bakes. <laughs> I mean, that's the best. I mean, nobody can make them as good as her. And there are some secretive favorite things, but that I wouldn't want to say on the camera, you know. Uh, of course, yeah. I find it so interesting and entertaining how Seema Auntie's clients describe what they are looking for in a partner. I rarely hear them say, I'm looking for someone who will be a great father to our children, who can help me raise a big and happy family. No, they focused on a host of personality characteristics, like someone who is funny, someone who's tall, has a full head of hair, someone who is upbeat and optimistic. Good, how are you? 
Here, take a listen. So, Nadia, tell me, like, uh, what are your preferences? Like, what type of life partner you'd like? Uh, someone, hopefully, who's tall. I'm. Um, I know that's how a very tall, like, like. How tall? I'm 5'9", so um, ideally. Six some, feet is fine. Six is yeah. is great. Like that is way better than I'm meeting here. I think the benefits of having a matchmaker is that they already know that their clients are serious versus if you meet somebody out in the street you don't know what their intentions are getting an understanding of who you are and being able to understand that other person and then you know weave the two of you together so i think passionate ambitious open-minded smart funny open-minded traveling um I feel like that's kind of just like a typical person, isn't it? Like, I don't really have anything uh, outside of the ordinary, just like someone who's a good person. I wonder if many of these people really want to start a family, or if they are just looking for a new best friend to keep them company and to put up with all their neurotic traits. Someone who will accept and, quote-unquote, appreciate them as they are, which is code for putting up with their crazy. I suspect that the reason the system of arranged marriages worked so well for so many centuries in India is because it's based on the idea that two people come together for the express purpose of starting a new family, and relatives try to match people based mostly on this consideration, which is a clear and definite purpose. Wanting to have children, then having children, changes everything. I can't emphasize this point enough. Starting a family, then raising children, is a massive plot of land, which is truly a long-term investment, filled with complexity and uncertainty. It's a lifetime commitment. Nothing compares. Not buying a house, not starting a business, not building a career. Of course, these are all worthwhile pursuits in their own right, but they're fundamentally different from creating a new family. I'm wondering out loud here that if you take starting a family out of the picture, what is left in the marriage equation? It's a totally different ballgame. I wonder if one of the reasons the people featured on Indian matchmaking are having a hard time finding someone is mainly because starting a family is not the main reason for their wanting to pair off in the first place. Their main reason is mostly a yearning for companionship, I suspect. Anyway, food for thought. When I met my wife and we went on our first date, it was February 2002. I remember every detail of that evening. We were having dinner. It was at an Indian restaurant, coincidentally. And we were chatting away about many different subjects. Feeling at ease, I casually asked her, How many children do you want to have? Notice I didn't ask if she wanted to have children in the first place. She answered, Oh, I don't know. Around 12, I guess. What about you? Yeah, I answered. 12 sounds about right. Then I joked how we should watch that Steve Martin movie called Cheaper by the Dozen, which we never got around to watching, by the way. Anyway, we never hit the 12 number, but we did manage somehow, God only knows how, to have four children. And here we are, 21 years later, still tilling the soil. And I gotta tell you, Parenting is more than a full-time job. I will continue to explore Sowell's two-farmers metaphor with our guest, David Feldman, later in the show. 
But now I'd like to turn our attention to a column Sowell wrote in 2007 called The Left's Long Assault on Marriage and Family. Remember the song lyrics, Love and Marriage, Love and Marriage. It's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry, and they will say it's elementary. Love and marriage, love and marriage. It's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry, and they will say it's elementary. According to the great American philosopher Frank Sinatra, The value of marriage is so clear and so obvious that it's elementary. It's an institution you simply can't disparage. But according to Sowell, the left has been working overtime for centuries to do just that, to disparage the institution of marriage. Here's what Sowell had to say on this subject in one of his weekly columns from 2007. The latest in a long line of New York Times editorials disguised as news stories was a recent article suggesting that most American women today do not have husbands. Partly this was based on census data, but much more so on creative definitions. The Times defined women to include females as young as 16 and counted widows, who of course could not be widows unless they had once had a husband. Wives whose husbands were away in the military or in prison were also counted among women not living with a husband. With such creative definitions, it turned out that 51% of women were not living with a husband. That made it most women and created a news story suggesting that these women were not married. In reality, only one-fourth of women have never married, even when you count girls as young as 16. While the data quoted in the New York Times story were about women who were not living with a husband, there were quotes in the story about women who rejected marriage. What was the point? To show that marriage is a thing of the past. As a headline in the San Francisco Chronicle put it, women see less need for old ball and chain. In other words, marriage is like a prison sentence complete with the old-fashioned leg irons with a chain connected to a heavy metal ball so that the prisoner cannot escape. This picture of marriage and a family as a burden is not peculiar to the New York Times or the San Francisco Chronicle. It is common among the intelligentsia of the left. The New York Times was not the first outlet of the left to play fast and loose with statistics in order to depict marriage as a relic of the past. Innumerable sources have quoted a statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce, another conclusion based on creative manipulation of words rather than on hard facts. The fact that there may be half as many divorces in a given year as there are marriages in that year does not mean that half of all marriages end in divorce. It is completely misleading to compare all the divorces in one year, from marriages begun years and even decades earlier, with the number of marriages begun in that one year. Why these desperate twistings of words and numbers by the left in order to discredit marriage? Partly, it is because marriage is a fundamental component of a social order that the left opposes. Moreover, marriage is seen as one of the social restrictions on individual free choice. These are not new ideas, even though they may be more pervasive than in the past, simply because the intelligentsia is larger and more vocal today. 
As far back as the 18th century, Rousseau said that man is born free but is everywhere in chains. In other words, the social restrictions essential to a civilized society were seen as unnecessary hindrances to each individual's freedom. It never seems to occur to those who think this way that if everyone were free of all social restrictions, only the strongest and most ruthless would in fact be free, and all the others would be subject to their dictates or destruction. Marriage and family are also barriers to the left's desire to create a society built to their own specifications. Friedrich Engels' first draft of the Communist Manifesto proclaimed the end of families, but Karl Marx thought better of it and took that out. In one way or another, however, the left has for more than two centuries tried to undermine families, including today redefining the words marriage and family to include whatever kind of people want to live together in whatever way, for whatever reason. If marriage can mean anything, then it means nothing. The New York Times' long-standing motto, All the News That's Fit to Print, should be changed to reflect today's reality. Manufacturing news to fit an ideology. Sowell makes the claim that the political left is not in general a big fan of the institution of marriage. Why would that be the case? Sowell lists three reasons. Number one, marriage is a fundamental component of a social order which the left opposes. Number two, the left sees marriage as a social restriction on individual free choice. And number three, the left sees marriage and family as a barrier to quickly creating the utopian society it longs for. In an interview with Peter Robinson, Sowell said this. Again, the Thomas Sowell reader, love is one of those bonds which enable people to function and mm. societies to flourish without being directed from above. Yes. Love is one of the many ways we influence each other and work out our interrated, interrelated lives without the help of the anointed. Yes. Now, the, of course, the theme that runs all the way through this book, as we've already established, is the anointed, the intelligentsia. And what you're saying here is, in fact, a kind of brutal analysis. You are saying that their drive to power yes. is so extreme that in some way it leads them to smother their own natural instinct toward love and to disregard it in other people. Well, the, is that the, fair the, the, well, lo, well lo, lo, love is one of the things that makes it possible for us to live without the anointed telling us what to do. But there are other things, too, that uh, create independence that the anointed are very much annoyed by, ranging from guns to automobiles. That uh, the, the whole thing, you know, the very... The, you know, I think I see an answer to Occupy Wall Street. It's Tom Sowell, and we're going to call it Love, Guns, and Automobiles. <laughs> But, but go ahead, explain that, that ordinary people leading their own lives. Without any need to seek, seek direction from, from above, from the anointed, uh, that annoys them. Otherwise, they, they would be cut out of this loop entirely. All right. But are married couples really better off than unmarried couples simply living together? Sowell seems to think so. In his interview with Peter Robinson, he said this. Marriage. Again, the Thomas Sowell reader, despite attempts to equate married couples with people who are living together as domestic partners, married couples, genuinely married couples, not domestic partners, are in fact better off by almost any standard you can think of. Close quote. 
Income. People who are married have higher incomes. Uh, domestic violence. The rate of domestic violence in marriage is a fraction of what it is among people who are simply living together. The abuse of children uh, in married couples, uh, families, is a fraction of what the, what the abuse of children is um, among people who are simply living together. So if you put it to an empirical test, it's just very clear that marriage makes a difference. Among blacks, black married couples have had a poverty rate in single digits every year since 1994. So there is a difference. Sowell also makes the claim that the left has redefined the words marriage and family to mean, quote, whatever kind of people want to live together in whatever way, for whatever reason, end quote. It's not exactly clear what Sowell is referring to in that last paragraph, but for sure, he's also referring to gay marriage. Sowell wrote quite a bit about gay marriage over the years. In 2008, he wrote this in one of his weekly columns. Another fraud on the ballot this year is gay marriage. Marriage has existed for centuries, and until recent times has meant a union between a man and a woman. During those centuries, a vast array of laws has grown up, all based on circumstances that arise in unions between a man and a woman. To apply a mountain of laws based specifically on experience with relations between a man and a woman to a different relationship, where sex differences are not involved, would be like applying the rules of baseball to football. In an earlier column, Sowell summarized the key differences between men and women with regard to marriage in this way. Here's his first point. Men and women are inherently in very different positions within a marriage. The fact that only women become pregnant means that male and female situations are never going to be the same no matter how much gender-neutral language we use. Laws must make them jointly responsible for the baby that she alone will have. This consideration likewise does not apply to homosexual unions. And here's his second point. Time has very different effects on men and women. As the years pass and women lose their physical attraction, men are typically rising in income and occupational status. It is usually easier for a middle-aged man to abandon his wife and make a second marriage with a younger, trophy wife than for a woman to remarry equally as advantageously. Since a woman has often invested years of her life in creating a home and family, the marriage contract is one way of trying to assure her that this investment will not be in vain. These and other differences between the sexes simply do not apply when the people in a domestic union are of the same sex. Sowell makes another point about the asymmetries in workforce participation between men and women. He says this. Wives, for example, typically invest in the family by restricting their own workforce participation, if only long enough to take care of small children. Studies show such differences still persist in this liberated age, even among women and men with postgraduate degrees from Harvard and Yale. In the absence of marriage laws, a husband could dump his wife at will, and she could lose decades of investment in their relationship. Marriage laws seek to recoup some of that investment for her through alimony when divorce occurs. Those who think of women and men in the abstract consider it right that ex-husbands should be as entitled to alimony as ex-wives. But what are these ex-husbands being compensated for? These are some of the reasons Sowell thinks that applying the rules of marriage designed for male-female unions to same-sex couples is akin to playing football 
with the rules from baseball. Two years later, in a discussion with Peter Robinson about his then-new book, Dismantling America, Sowell went into more detail about his views on gay marriage, and in so doing, he uncovers one of his most important insights. This is an insight so profound that once you have heard it, you will never forget it. This insight has the potential to shift the way we see a wide range of issues. Let's listen in as Peter Robinson does what he does best, which is to gently bring out the genius of you-know-who. This segment is on marriage. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, you write, said that the life of the law has not been logic but experience. Vast numbers of laws have accumulated and evolved over the centuries based on experience with male-female unions. There is no reason why all those laws should be transferred willy-nilly to a different kind of union, one with neither the inherent tendency to produce children or the inherent asymmetries of relationships between people of different sexes. That's quotation one. Mm -hmm. Here's quotation two. U.S. District Judge Fawn Walker ruling in Perry versus Schwarzenegger on August 4th. Quote, gender no longer forms an essential part of marriage. Close quote. I just dropped that in your lap to see what you do with it, Dr. Sowell. <laughs> well, you know, the most important decision uh, is always who makes the decision. And so the question is not what is the role of gender for this judge to decide. But since we are presumably still, for the moment at least, a self-governing nation, uh, it's, for the, it's for the voting public to decide. And so the fact that he feels that way, that's wonderful. Let him vote that way in the, in the privacy of the voting booth. But let him not say that this is now the law of the land just because he happens to think that way. Tom, let me give you just another couple of quotations from Judge Vaughn Walker's ruling the other day. Uh, Judge Walker, the traditional understanding of marriage represents, quote, nothing more than an artifact of a foregone notion that men and women fulfill different roles in civic life. Close quote. That's an artifact. Well, uh, one might say that Judge Walker is an artifact of what, what goes on in academia and particularly in the law schools. But again, the question is, whose decision is that? Is that a judge is there to decide that the rest of us, that what we believe is, uh, is just not worth thinking about? Or is he there to uh, carry out the laws that have been passed Tom, by the duly elected representatives? Tom, you know that during this trial, he had a long fact-finding phase in which one sociologist and expert after another came in to testify about the roles of genders, the state of marriage in the 21st century, and so forth. You just brush all that aside? No, none of that uh, is a substitute for, the, for, for we the people, which is what the Constitution is about. Well, I, I could give you an impressive list of people who have said absurd things. In fact, if you were to uh, make a list of all the absurd things said by brilliant people, it would be longer than the Encyclopedia Britannica. All right. Uh, one more from Judge Walker here. Quote, the evidence shows conclusively that moral and religious views form the only basis for the belief that same-sex couples are different from opposite-sex couples. Close quote. Well, it may be conclusive to him, but again, the question is, whose decision is it? Obviously, it's not conclusive to other people, or else the, the proposition that he was ruling on would never have passed. And been passed with the votes of 7 million Californians, yes. by the way. The key line in this conversation is when Sowell says, 
the most important decision is always who makes the decision. In that interview, Sowell hammers home the point that he believes it is not the role of any judge to decide whether or not gay marriage should be legal. Sowell believes that this decision should be left up to we the people, the voting public. This is a key concept within the Sowellian framework for viewing the world, and I'm grateful to Sowell for teaching me this idea. Sowell first laid out the who shall decide concept in his 1980 book, Knowledge and Decisions. He said this, The most basic question is not what is best, but who shall decide what is best. The general case for third-party overriding of individual transactors' preferences is seldom made explicit, and so cannot itself be assessed. Its many oblique versions rely heavily on insinuation, metaphor, and the physical fallacy. Figures of speech about society as decision-maker ignore the diversity of individual preferences which are responsible for many of the very phenomena in question, whether economic, social, or political. I've warned you before, knowledge and decisions is not the kind of book you skim. It's the kind of book you study. It's definitely not bathroom reading. Gay marriage is the perfect case study of the who-shall-decide phenomenon. Back in the year 2000, the state of California held a vote, a referendum, as to whether or not gay marriage should be allowed. This was called Proposition 22 at the time. And 61% of the voters voted against gay marriage. The people had spoken, apparently. Eight years later, another vote was held. This one was called Proposition 8. And once again, the voters decided against gay marriage by a margin of 52 to 48 percent. The people had spoken yet again. Two years later, a district court judge named Vaughn Walker ruled that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional, thereby paving the way for the legalization of gay marriage. This is the judge Sowell was talking about in his conversation with Peter Robinson. It's worth noting here that Judge Walker was and is openly gay. I only mention that so that I can ask this question. Does that matter? Should that matter? Do we want a system where the personal sexual proclivities of one person can change the course of the entire nation? I ask this question. Who should decide about gay marriage? Should it be the people or should it be a judge? I could ask this question about a host of other crucial issues. At what age should someone be allowed to vote? What restrictions, if any, should there be on abortion? At what age should someone be allowed to drive a car, to fly an airplane? Did you know that in many states you're allowed to fly an airplane before you're allowed to drive a car? Strange, right? Who should decide all this stuff? I'd like to suggest that the next time you are presented with a controversy of some kind, any kind, before you let your mind jump right to what you think is the best solution and why, ask yourself this important question first. Who should make the final decision about this issue? Should it be the individual for him or herself? Should it be the family unit? Should it be a local government representing the will of the people? A state government? The federal government? Or should it be a judge? Which judge? The Supreme Court, perhaps? According to Sowell, 
the locus of decision-making in America has been gradually shifting away from the individual and towards government. In Knowledge and Decisions, Sowell says this, Even within democratic nations, the locus of decision-making has drifted away from the individual, the family, and voluntary associations of various sorts, and toward government. And within government, it has moved away from elected officials subject to voter feedback and toward more insulated governmental institutions, such as bureaucracies and the appointed judiciary. So it seems that the main issue Sowell has with the way gay marriage has become a reality in the United States is that it was pushed through literally against the will of the people. Assuming, of course, you believe that counting votes is the best way we currently have to assess the will of the people. Sowell wrote a whole book about this issue called The Vision of the Anointed. I've never liked that title because the word anointed sounds so fuzzy to my ears, like some type of ointment for dry skin. But it's a great book, so I will forgive the publisher's marketing department this time. I won't go too deep into this issue here, but suffice it to say that for those with dry skin, the anointed, gay marriage got decided in exactly the best way, namely against the will of a backward-thinking public. Gay marriage got pushed through by enlightened elites who have the power to override the retrograde tendencies of us regular folk. In The Vision of the Anointed, Sowell says this, The anointed do not simply happen to have a disdain for the public. Such disdain is an integral part of their vision, for the central feature of that vision is preemption of the decisions of others. The thing I find most fascinating about the issue of gay marriage is hinted at by Peter Robinson later in his conversation with Sowell. Robinson asked this, How did we go, in the space of a couple of decades, maybe three, but I think probably closer to two, from an America in which the notion of same-sex marriage was literally unthinkable, that is to mm -hmm. say, it was in nobody's head, mm -hmm. so outlandish that it never occurred to anyone, to a sitting judge, federal judge, a, named to the federal bench, by the way, by George H.W. Bush, Heaven help us. Uh, coming out with an opinion like this. What happened to the legal regime to the social mor to the mores what what this is why i say that obama is really the culmination of a trend he didn't do this by himself that there was a, a notion out there a set of notions really about the country about what what was right and about who should make what decisions those what notions were out there you know b b before he ever became a public figure uh, but now that he and i think what you saw was an erosion of the confidence in the country and the country's culture his principles and so forth, and all of this happened. And what is happening now is what was just a, an erosion, sort of almost uh, uncoordinated and so on, uh, to, to, a, to a deliberate attempt on his part to change the country in fundamental ways. How did such a massive societal change happen so quickly? It seems like just yesterday that our now President Joe Biden said this. You know, think about this. The world's going to... Hades in a handbasket. We are desperately concerned about the circumstance relating to uh, avian flu. We don't have enough vaccines. We don't have enough police officers. And we're going to debate the next three weeks, I'm told, gay marriage, a flag amendment, and God only knows what else. 
I can't believe the American people can't see through this. We already have a law, the Defense of Marriage Act, where we've all voted, not where I voted and others said, look, marriage is between a man and a woman, and states must respect that. Nobody's violated that law. There's been no challenge to that law. Why do we need a constitutional amendment? Marriage is between a man and a woman. What's the game going on here? President Obama held similar positions to Biden, though in a somewhat more nuanced and some would say confusing way. With respect to gay marriage, I, I do not support uh, gay marriage, but I support a very strong version of civil unions uh, where I think the state has to recognize the same rights and responsibilities for gay people, same-sex couples, as they do for anybody else. Because the state is not a religious institution. In 2004, Senator Hillary Clinton said this about marriage. I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have had occasion in my life to defend marriage to stand up for marriage, to believe in the hard work and challenge of marriage. So I take umbrage at anyone who might suggest that those of us who worry about amending the Constitution are less committed to the sanctity of marriage or to the fundamental bedrock principle that it exists between a man and a woman going back into the mists of history as one of the founding, foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization, and that its primary principal role during those millennia has been the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. In the year 2004, Democrat John Kerry said this about marriage. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. But I also believe that because we are the United States of America, we're a country with a great, unbelievable constitution with rights that we afford people, that you can't discriminate in the workplace. You can't discriminate in the rights that you afford people. In 2004, Democratic Senator John Edwards said this about marriage. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, and so does John Kerry. I also believe there should be partnership benefits for gay and lesbian couples in long-term committed relationships. Not surprisingly, Republicans like George Bush and Mitt Romney said basically the same thing as their Democratic opponents. I'm not for gay marriage. I I think marriage is a sacred institution between a man and a woman. I do not favor um, uh, marriage between people of the same gender, and I don't favor civil unions if if they're identical to marriage other than by name. Uh, My view is that domestic partnership benefits, hospital visitation rights and the like uh, are appropriate, but that uh, the others are not. But it is surprising that such a short time ago, Democrats were also saying that the institution of marriage should be limited to unions between a man and a woman, and that other arrangements should be made for unions between same-sex couples. For me, the most fascinating aspect of this story is the pace of change which it demonstrates. For thousands of years, society thought that marriage was a union between one man and one woman, 
And now, suddenly, within the span of only about 10 years, 10 years, that conception of marriage is now viewed with suspicion and contempt. It's outside the Overton window, outside the bounds of what quote-unquote good people are allowed to say, and possibly even think. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that lots of things are changing very quickly these days. Very quickly. It seems like just yesterday that boys used the boys' bathroom and girls the girls' bathroom. It was always that way. That's not a given anymore. People are putting pronouns in their email signatures. Pronouns? Men dressed up as women in an exaggerated way are reading stories to children at libraries across the country. For centuries, people voted in person. Now, all of a sudden, they're mailing in their ballots. The cops used to pull me over if I broke a traffic law while driving. They don't do that anymore. Many people seriously think we don't even need the police. People are setting up tent camps right on the street and living there, and no one is stopping them. People are gathering in mobs and pulling down statues if they don't like them. People are walking into stores and just taking what they want without paying, and district attorneys are advertising that they won't prosecute them as long as they don't take too much. I don't remember voting for any of these changes, do you? You know, I'm a big believer in the slippery slope. It's one of those powerful laws of nature that just can't be repealed, like the law of unintended consequences. In Dismantling America, Sowell said this about the slippery slope. Those who see court decisions as simply a means to their particular ends, whether on issues like abortion or gun control or innumerable other issues, are treating the integrity of the law as expendable, when law is what holds a society together. Here, too, it is all too easy to start down the slippery slope that leads to the war of each against all. What Sowell is getting at in this quote is that we need to be really careful about the changes we make in society and how we make them. Why? Because even if you agree with a particular change in principle, the act of changing things and the way you change them, plus changing them dramatically and quickly, sets in motion a slippery slope of other changes, which you may or may not agree with. Is there a connection between the Supreme Court clearing the way for gay marriage eight years ago and the rise of transgenderism today? I can't prove that there is a connection, but I believe that there is. The slippery slope works in mysterious ways. Once you start questioning one of the basic tenets of a society, you might as well question all the other ones too. Nothing is off limits. The actor Jeremy Irons was grappling with the slippery slope in this interview with a reporter. Does that apply to things like gay marriage for you? I mean, the, the last week we, the Supreme Court was hearing Defense of Marriage Act, uh, you know, basically they're going to be deciding on gay marriage this Same year. Same as we are in England. Yeah. I don't How know. How far does it extend? Well, I don't know. I mean... It's a very interesting one, that, and, and I don't really have a strong feeling, but I see that the, what we had in England, which was, uh, it was not marriage, but it was a, a, a union you could make if you, were, if you were gay and you wanted to make a civil partnership. Yeah, civil union sort of has the same rights as marriage, but That's not right. the name. Same rights, not the name. And I, it seems to me that now 
they're fighting for the name, and I worry that it means somehow we debase or we change what marriage is. Um, I just worry about that. I mean, tax-wise is an interesting one because, you see, could a father not marry his son? Uh, Well, there are laws against incest. It's not incest between men. Incest is there to protect us from having um, uh, uh, inbreeding. But but, but men don't breed, therefore they... So incest wouldn't cover that. Now, if that was so, then if I wanted to pass on my estate without death duties, I could marry my son and pass on my estate to him. No, that sounds like a total red herring. I'm sure that that incest law would still cover same-sex marriages. Really? Why? Because uh, I don't think that incest law is only justified on the basis of, uh, of the consequences of, for procreation. I think, it's also, I think there's also a moral approbation that's associated with incest. Uh, but I think it comes from, from yeah, it probably does about inbreeding. Yeah. A moral approbation. I mean, I think the lawyers are going to have a field day with same-sex marriage. I just guess they are. I, I don't have a strong feeling either way. I mean, I just wish everybody who who's living with one other person, the best of luck in the world, mm. because it can, it's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, Spoken like a happily married man. Yeah, and also a man who has a dog that he loves. <laughs> you know, I mean, living with another animal, whether it be a husband or a dog, um, is great. You know, we, it's, it's lovely to have someone to love. I don't mm. think sex matters at all. What it's called, I don't think matters at all. You heard it here first. Jeremy Irons is going to marry his dog. This is truly groundbreaking news. Now, I'm not a big fan of caring what actors have to say about this subject or that. Just because someone has pretended to be someone super smart or super strong in a movie doesn't mean they are any more insightful about politics or current affairs than, say, a barber or a taxi driver. The reason I played the Jeremy Irons clip is because I think it's a good example of what it sounds like when someone is grappling with and worrying about the slippery slope. Thinking out loud, if you will. Sowell said this about the trap of listening to actors. Why do actors, people whose main talent is faking emotions, think that their opinions should be directing the course of political events in the real world? Yet it is a mistake that they have been making as far back as John Wilkes Booth. It reminds me of the old joke, too bad that all the people who really know how to fix the world are too busy cutting hair and driving taxis. It seems like just yesterday that boys will be boys and girls will be girls. It seems like just yesterday when Mr. Rogers sang this. Some are fancy on the outside. Some are fancy on the inside. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy and so is mine. Boys are boys from the beginning. When you're born a boy baby, you grow up to be a bigger boy and then a man. Girls are girls right from the start. When you're born a girl baby, you grow up to be a bigger girl and then a woman. Everybody's fancy, everybody's fine. Your body's fancy and so is mine. Girls grow up to be the mommies. Boys grow up 
to be the daddies. Everybody's fancy, everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. I think you're a special person, and I like your ins and outsides. Everybody's fancy, everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. If Mr. Rogers were with us today, what would he say? Would he stick to his guns, or would he cave to the mob and do the old flip-flop and say, "Well, I didn't really mean it the way it sounded. I'm not really sure." The slippery slope is very powerful. It's more like an avalanche nowadays, and you either get swept up with it, or you get buried by it. In his interview with Peter Robinson, Sowell touches on many of these subjects. No fault divorce, making divorce easier. This begins in what the '60s, I guess, is when it really picks up steam. There are a few states earlier than that. No fault divorce is now uh, commonplace throughout across the country. Most recently, we have gay marriage. Mm. Uh, New York, what New York is, I guess, the third largest state by population these days. New York enacted gay marriage. Is there a uh, am I reading too much? Would you see a continuum of a kind of animus against this fundamental institution? Of oh, marriage? yes. You would. Y- yes. Uh, the first draft of the Communist Manifesto, which Engels wrote, uh, specifically wanted to uh, 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 dismember the family. And Marx uh, decided that that, 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 w- that wasn't going to fly. Uh, and so when he rewrote it, he left that out. But, that, but that's been there if you follow the left back over the past two centuries. You see in there one way or another where they try to undermine the decision-making autonomy of the family. Uh, Hillary they Clinton, sense it as an enemy from the very beginning. Oh, absolutely. The Hillary, when Hillary Clinton said, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, uh, and someone said it takes a village idiot to believe that. <laughs> uh, you know, what they're saying is they want to come in there and tell them. You see, it's, it's part of the whole thing of Third parties wanting to make decisions for which they pay no price when, they, when, when they're wrong. You see, when, 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 the, when the parent raises the child the wrong way, the parent pays the price when the child goes down the tubes. But these third parties can sit back in their air, wherever, wherever they are, Washington or whatever. And if the things they tell us turn out to be wrong, it doesn't hurt them. For example, uh, f- before we introduced sex education into the schools in the 60s, the rate of venereal disease had been going down every single year. Teenage pregnancy had been going down every single year. I think it was the rate of uh, uh, infection for uh, gonorrhea in 1960 was half of what it was in 1950. So all these things were going down before the, the, the left came into the schools with their sex education. And all these things reversed and shot up immediately afterwards. But nobody paid any pri- nobody who pushed that paid any price for it. Now, if you think our discussion of gay marriage is controversial or edgy, I want to dip my toe into a subject which is way more shocking and maybe even totally over the top. Yes, I'm talking about intermarriage. I'd like to talk about the subject of intermarriage through a very personal lens, my own marriage. Want to hear the story of how I met my wife? It was February 4th, 2002, at the New York University swimming pool. We met by chance. I was in lane five, and she was in lane six. I approached her out of the blue and introduced myself. 
What's your name? I asked. Bianca, I heard her say. Alan, I replied. She excused herself shortly thereafter, telling me she has to get back to her swim class. I wasn't sure whether she was blowing me off or literally just had to get back to her class. But there was a way to find out. After leaving the pool, I cobbled together a sheet of blank paper, a pen, and a single piece of scotch tape, and I wrote a note. Bianca, if you ever want some private swim lessons, let me know. Alan, P.S. Do you believe in love at first sight? I included my cell phone number at the end. I then boldly taped the note with Bianca facing outward on the wall directly outside the exit of the women's locker room so that every woman leaving the pool that night had to see the note. Remember, those were the days when only women used the women's locker room. I know, it seems so retro. As I left the building, I could see from the atrium above that she was still swimming. And I thought to myself, if it's meant to be, something will happen. Then I left. Two days later, I was at work, and my cell phone rang. It was Bianca. Only it wasn't really Bianca, it was Priyanka. Apparently, I had misheard her name that night, but she saw the note, remembered that we had exchanged names at the pool, and because that confusion happened frequently with her name, she assumed the note must have been for her, and pulled it off the wall. And she called, which in retrospect turned out to be the luckiest phone call of my life. We had a great conversation on the phone. Priyanka was not only incredibly beautiful, she was also smart and funny, and we clicked immediately. A date was set for the next week to meet at the then-trendy coffee shop restaurant on Union Square. Fast forward 21 years to today. Priyanka and I are married and living in Los Angeles, with four daughters and a house with a two-car garage. Not that we can fit either of our cars in the garage. Apparently, when you have kids, you need boxes and boxes of Christmas decorations, Easter decorations, Halloween decorations, scooters, bicycles. You get the idea. But I digress. So that's how we met and where we ended up. And obviously there is a lot to tell about everything that happened in between. But the topic of this part of the podcast is intermarriage. So that's the aspect of our relationship I want to focus on now. Priyanka is Indian. Yes, from India, not the Native American variety. She's Hindu and Jain from Ancestry and speaks a dialect called Gujarati. She moved to the U.S. with her parents when she was eight years old. I'm Jewish from Brooklyn. My parents were part Lithuanian, part German. I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens, had mostly Jewish friends, was bar mitzvahed at age 13, and was culturally Jewish, although by no means religious. She's darkish-brownish, while I'm lightish-whitish. We look different. From the very beginning, Priyanka and I always got along splendidly, and I never thought much about the racial and cultural differences between us. I never really thought about us as an intermarriage, even though by all obvious standards of logic and reason, we clearly were. Priyanka prayed in an unfamiliar way each morning, and I thought it was cute to watch. The names of all her friends were unusual and unfamiliar at first. It was challenging for me to tell from their sound which names were male and which were female. Her friendship circle was almost exclusively Indian, and I remember gatherings where I was the lone non-Indian in a group of 10 or 15 people. Her mom's cooking was completely vegetarian, 
and so different from the food I was used to. I fully embraced the Indian culture. We traveled to India and met all her relatives. They liked me, and I liked them, and still do to this day. We had an Indian-style wedding, which suited me just fine, because I'm not even sure what a Jewish-style wedding would look like, as distinct from an American-style wedding with a white gown, black tuxedo, tall cake, etc. To me, the Indian connection was a fun and exciting aspect of our relationship. I never once viewed it as an obstacle to be navigated around or a handicap to be overcome. Of course, along the way, there were some slight indications that a clashing of cultures was occurring. For example, we sent out wedding menu cards to our guests, asking if they prefer beef, fish, or vegetarian. And one guest wrote on the card, American food. I laughed it off as a typical manifestation of his sheltered Long Island North Shore experience, but Priyanka was not as amused, which I can now understand. Anyway, I'm not easily offended by such things, even when they are genuinely offensive. I'm a baby boomer. I grew up during an era when racism and culturalism was just the way things were, and everybody had preconceived notions about the way certain groups tended to be, and that seemed kind of normal. Jews had their characteristics, wasps had theirs, blacks had theirs, Asians had others, and we just did our best to laugh about the differences and have fun with them. I myself have told many Jewish jokes, which Jewish friends of mine found offensive. I never cared. Get over it. Nowadays, all that has changed, and everyone is a sensitive snowflake, and we're not allowed to talk about those differences without being accused of racism and something of phobia. Lately, I wonder if everyone is so opposed to racism and other phobia, why don't more people actively promote intermarriage? It seems to me that intermarriage between races and cultures is the only real, surefire way to eliminate racism in the long run. If racism is the biggest problem facing mankind, and by the intensity of the popular conversation these days it seems to be, why not just get rid of all the different races and the problem will be solved? If there's no more black and white, Hispanic, Arab, or Asian, but everyone is a mixture of all those, then poof! Racism will cease to exist, and we'll be able to focus all our energies on solving other problems, like disease, poverty, obesity, and war. And yet, I rarely hear anyone promoting or even talking about intermarriage. True, intermarriage is on the rise, especially among higher educated people living in big cities. But it's still a rare event outside of cities and among the majority of people around the world. Racism and in-group preferences has been an issue for thousands of years. And it seems like just talking about it and rallying against it doesn't have much impact on the problem. In fact, there's an argument to be made that the more we talk about racism, the worse the problem becomes, because now we're focusing on the issue. And, as all believers in the law of attraction know, the more you focus on something, the more of it you get. In contrast, if everyone were to simply marry someone of a different race or culture than themselves, then the problem of racism would be solved once and for all in two or three generations. That's not that long in the scheme of things. When I look at our daughters, four, six, nine, and 11 years old, I am amazed to notice that they don't seem to be any particular race. They're near impossible to pin down as being of any particular background. And that is from only one generation of mixing. Imagine what happens as they get older, themselves intermarry, 
and mix up the marbles in the jar even more. For me, intermarrying has not been such a big deal. I don't notice any real negatives, nor do I notice any major advantages. It seems more neutral to me. Far more important is that I found an amazing woman to partner with, to create and raise a family with, and to share the rest of my life with. Not to mention someone to put up with my crazy. But when I think of it from a macroeconomic perspective, I see how what we have done will have a major, long-lasting impact on the future for generations to come. But am I correct in thinking that intermarriage is the key to eradicating racism from the human story? Sowell seems to disagree with me on that. In Intellectuals and Race, Sowell said this, Nor is intermarriage the ultimate solution to racial problems that many once thought. Jews in Germany in the 1920s had high rates of intermarriage, but that did not stop the rise of Hitler in the 1930s or the Holocaust in the 1940s. Indeed, intermarriage led to larger numbers of offspring being classified as Jews, with tragic consequences. Sowell continues. Many have yearned for a society where race was irrelevant, and some saw the election of the first black president of the United States as a major step toward that kind of society. But polls on support for and opposition to that president among different ethnic groups are just one sign of continuing racial polarization. In short, no matter how ultimately irrelevant race may seem to some, racial issues show no sign of going away. They cannot be ignored. The only question is how we confront them. So now that we've talked about marriage and what Sowell has to say on the subject, what else is there to discuss? Oh wait, I know, love. Let's talk about love. I'll bet you didn't even know that Sowell wrote about love. I admit, he didn't write much on the subject. But despite his cool and collected exterior, he is a softy deep down. And yes, he has feelings too. In his 2011 book called The Thomas Sowell Reader, Sowell included an essay titled Love is a Four-Letter Word. Let's take a quick listen to that essay here, and I'll pause it to add my two cents when it's helpful. Love is a four-letter word, but you don't hear it nearly as often as you hear some other four-letter words. It may be a sign of our times that everyone seems to be talking openly about sex, but we seem to be embarrassed to talk about love. Sex alone will not even reproduce the human race, because babies cannot survive the first week of life without incredible amounts of care. That care comes from love. If the parents are too wretched to give the infant the attention he needs, then a general love of babies must lead others to set up some backup system, so that the child does not die of neglect. The shallow people who have turned our schools into propaganda centers for the counterculture try hard to take love out of human relations. Between men and women, for example, there is just sex, if you believe the clever anointed. But why should we believe them? Why have there been such painful laments, in letters, literature, poetry, and song, for so many centuries about the breakup of love affairs? Because there are no other members of the opposite sex available? Not at all. Sex is almost always available, if only commercially. But love is a lot harder to find. Some people do not even try after their loved one is gone. Some give up on life itself. In short, what millions of people have done for hundreds of years gives the lie to the self-important cynics who want to reduce everything to an animal level. Actually, many animals behave in ways which suggest that love is important to them, 
not only among their own species, but also with human beings. Stories of dogs who have rescued or defended their owners, even at the cost of their lives, go back for centuries. In this passage, Sowell reminds us that love is the glue that holds humanity together. It enables us to survive as babies and to thrive as adults. Sowell wonders aloud why our intelligentsia seems to downplay the importance of love. He continues, Why is love so out of fashion with the intelligentsia and others who are striving to be with it? Love is one of those bonds which enable people to function and societies to flourish without being directed from above. Love is one of the many ways we influence each other and work out our interrelated lives without the help of the anointed. Like morality, loyalty, honesty, respect, and other immaterial things, love is one of the intangibles, without which the tangibles won't work. Intellectuals are not comfortable with that. They want to be able to reduce everything to something material, predictable, and, above all, controllable. Many want to be in charge of our lives, not have us to work things out among ourselves, whether through emotional ties or the interactions of the marketplace. Sowell asserts that our elite class downplays the importance of love because it's something that can't be controlled from above. This passage reminds me of George Orwell's 1984. Orwell described a world where love between a man and a woman was forbidden by the state. The government wanted its citizens to feel a devotion and loyalty only towards Big Brother. Winston and Julia had to meet secretly in the forest so their love would not be discovered. Orwell wrote this. Unlike Winston, she had grasped the inner meaning of the party's sexual puritanism. It was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own which was outside the party's control and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. What was more important was that sexual privation induced hysteria, which was desirable because it could be transformed into war fever and leader worship. The way she put it was, when you make love, you're using up energy, and afterwards you, you feel happy and don't give a damn for anything. They can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself, why should you get excited about Big Brother and the three-year plans and the two minutes hate and all the rest of their bloody rot? If Orwell was right... I'm wondering out loud here if a disruption in the natural connection between men and women has been transformed into a crusading mentality in the population at large. Can the many manifestations of social justice activism we see today be explained by the need to sublimate our natural desires, which are not being fulfilled in the normal way? Something to ponder. Sowell continues. Another four-letter word that has fallen out of favor is duty. It has not been banned. It has just been buried under tons of discussions of rights. The two words used to be linked, but not anymore. In the real world, however, rights and duties are as closely tied as ever. If A has the right to something, then B has a duty to see that he gets it. Otherwise, A has no such right. When it is a right to freedom of speech, then it is the duty of judges to stop the government from shutting him up, or to let him sue if they do. The big problem comes when it is no longer a question of rights to be left alone, but rights to things that other people have to produce, 
When it is a right to decent housing, for example, that means other people have a duty to produce that housing and supply it to you, whether or not you are willing to pay what it costs. Only because the inherent link between rights and duties is broken verbally are advocates for all sorts of sweeping new rights able to sidestep the question as to why someone else must provide individuals with what they are unwilling to provide for themselves. The claim is often made or implied that people may be willing to provide for themselves but are simply unable to do so. But when push comes to shove, many of the intelligentsia will admit that it doesn't matter to them why someone doesn't have something that he needs. He has a right to it. It also doesn't matter how someone caught AIDS. He has no duty to avoid it, but others have a duty to pay for it. What is involved is not just some words, but a whole vision of life. If one has the vision of the anointed who want to control other people's lives, then all those things which enable us to function independently of them and of government programs are suspect. Four-letter words like love, duty, work, and save are hallmarks of people with a very different vision who make their own way through life without being part of some grandiose scheme of the anointed or of government bureaucracies that administer such schemes. No wonder those words are not nearly as popular as other four-letter words. Of all the four-letter words which Sowell highlights in this last passage, the one that really jumps out for me is the word save. Now that he mentions it, I notice that I never hear anyone talking about saving. It's always spend, spend, and more spend. Our government, our leaders, certainly don't appreciate the value of saving resources for the future. It's a different vision of life than the one Sowell is describing here. While I'm on the subject of saving, now is the perfect time to invite our special guest onto the show to discuss some of these issues with me. He's an expert on saving. Saving marriages, that is. I met David Feldman serendipitously on Twitter. Someone amplified one of his tweets, and boom, our paths crossed. I was immediately drawn to the wisdom of his views, and he and I started corresponding about a year ago. David is a licensed marriage and family therapist. His specialty is the institution of marriage and what couples can do to strengthen their marriages. He recently published a book called 52 Tweets to a Great Marriage. I'll put a link in the show notes in case you want to order the book. In the book, David shares 52 of his most powerful aphorisms and elaborates on them. Sometimes I joke to my wife that I think this David guy has a camera hidden in our house because it often feels that his tweets are exactly mirroring what is going on in our marriage at any given time. I used to text screenshots of his tweets to her, but she told me to stop sending them. She was like, hey, if you're sending me these tweets because you think I should change or I should do this or that differently or better, save it, buddy. You should be following his advice, not me. Maybe she's right. As David always says, stop trying so hard to get your wife to change. Work on yourself instead. You can't control other people, but you can control yourself. It reminds me of something that the comedian Bill Burr once said about being married. So anyways, I'm a married man with a kid, happily married man. Yes, I am. Yeah, I love my wife to death. I love everything about being fucking married. But I'll tell you this right now. We do fight a lot. We do argue all the time. If I've learned anything in five years of being married is we're always working on me. 
you know? <laughs> Evidently, my wife is this completed work under museum glass that is to be admired and studied. Like, hmm, how did she do that? And I'm like one of these guys, one of the, you know those buildings that just has scaffolding around it for like six straight years? So you're like, are they ever going to finish that thing? Is that some sort of insurance shop? Jesus Christ, what a piece of shit. You should just tear it down start over again. By the way, I just want to give you a heads up. While I was doing research for this episode, I chanced upon some great clips from well-known comedians talking about marriage. They're just too good not to include in this episode. So I'll be splicing some of these clips into my interview with David. You know, for some comic relief. It's the second best kind of relief known to man. There were a lot of great comedy clips I did not include just because the language was too foul. Hey, this is a family podcast. But I couldn't totally avoid a little bit of foul language. Sorry about that. It was inevitable. Before I introduce you to David, I'd like to give you a taste for a couple of the aphorisms he broadcasts on Twitter, which attracted me to his way of thinking. Some of his tweets are intended for men. Here's an example. Being a man in a loving relationship often means going beyond our very powerful and legitimate need for sex. It's a cruel hoax God plays. It's almost as if, to be a man, you need to go beyond your definition of being a man. Our test, not hers. Here's another example of a tweet for us men. Just because she has a sharp bite doesn't mean she actually likes to fight. Although she may appear to be Mike Tyson, battle-ready, most women who lash out are doing so from a place of pain, sadness, and insecurity. But just as many of his tweets are speaking directly to women, here's an example. Not every man will indefinitely attempt to tear down your walls. After a certain number of rejections, dismissals, and fights, he will just give up. Not on life. Just on you. Here's another tweet for the ladies. Femininity has the unique quality of being able to lower a man's guard to the point of true vulnerability. In the arms of the right woman, even a pure alpha male will melt. This is real power. And some of his tweets are directed at both men and women jointly. Here's one example. All women want to be protected and safe. All men want to protect and provide. All women want to be loved. All men want to love. Let's not make this difficult. On the subject of marriage and family, David said this. Marriage, family, and commitment have been so pathologized in today's culture that our youth are being forced into temporary, fleeting interactions, deeply hoping they will turn into more. To no avail. How crushing. David Feldman, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a couples therapist. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I when I when I finished my college education, I graduated with a degree of sociology, which was completely useless <laughs> and offered me no ability to support my family. Um, so, shortly after I got married, I went into technology and to computers, and I focused on computers probably for the first twenty years of my professional career. And it's been very it's been very good to me and I've always appreciated that career, but at some point my early 40s I decided that I'm tired of staring at a screen all day. I'm tired of, you know, dealing with numbers and algorithms and business problems and I wanted to reconnect with people 
you know, I, I've always been a very connecting person and a communicative person. And it was just really tough to me to just be in the business world with no relationship um, interactions. And I coupled this with actually having some difficulty in my own marriage. And we can talk about, you know, the stages of marriage development. And I was right on target, early 40s. That's when most men wake up from their dream and discover that something's not not cooking properly in the kitchen. and They got to start figuring things out. And so my wife and I went, went to couples therapy. And as I was sitting there, I said to myself, I could really do this better than her. <laughs> and I decided to go to school for marriage therapy. And it was a tough decision because I was already, you know, I was 42, 43 years old. And to get my master's degree would have been three to five years and to get my license, et cetera. And, um, but I decided to pursue it, thankfully. And I'm very happy that I did. It was a great decision. And I've been working with couples and individuals and families ever since. I love relationships. I love bringing peace between men and women. I love talking about how to build trust and love and intimacy. And I'm a big fan of marriage. So yeah, I'm really excited about what I do now. See, this is very personal to me because I'm like the last of my guy friends to have never gotten married and their wives, they don't want them playing with me. You know, I, I'm like the escaped slave. I bring news of freedom. You know, it's, it's not a good thing to have me around, you know. Keep the husbands in the dark. They're happier that way. But, you know, all my married friends, I knew these guys when they were young, and they were Mustangs. They used to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and now they are not Mustangs. They're that horse in Central Park with the blinders on, you know, just going around in a circle in a cloud of flies and shitting in a bucket, you know, just... So, so how did you, you know decide to specialize in marriage counseling. I know that you have a Twitter presence called Building Better Marriages. That's your handle. Building Great Marriages. Building Great Marriages. Building Great Marriages. So that's like you're all in on (laughs) the the concept of marriage and having the best pot. And and all your tweets, pretty much 100% are on that subject. So tell us how, how that came to be. So I've always been a relationship-oriented person. I remember when I was just a young boy, I would meet interesting people, couples, this and that. Even as like a 10-year-old, I would ask them how they met each other and what's so great about their being married and you know what's going on in their family. My parents were mortified when they'd find me talking to complete strangers like at the grocery store about this type of stuff. So I've always had a, a warm spot in my heart for relationships. And interestingly enough, when I started on Twitter, probably in earnest about 2015 or 2017, after I had already gotten my degree and was working with people already, I noticed that there was a lot of what I would say disinformation, misinformation, unhealthy, dysfunctional information about relationships. And it wasn't easy to find people who were marriage and relationship positive. It was actually not easy. And most of those tended to be like very religious people and their feeds, their Twitter feeds tended to reflect a lot of religious ideas, which is fine. 
but I didn't feel that that attracted the masses of individuals like a regular Americans. I also happen to be a religious person, which is, you know, very obvious if you take a look at my picture, etc. But I try to write my tweets in such a way that they appeal to everybody, leaving out as much overt religious innuendos as possible. Um, I do use the word God in my tweets fairly often because I believe that most Americans have a relationship with God on some level. So I feel that that's okay to leave in there. But in general, I felt there was a market at four. There was a there was a dark. There was a a lack of, especially coming from a man's perspective, relationship positive, marriage oriented content on Twitter. And I found my own voice. I originally started through the red pill kind of philosophy. I somehow ended up in that tract, and I realized this wasn't for me. And instead, I decided I'm going to you know lock all of that content and instead write pro-marriage, masculine-oriented, relationship-centric content. And it's been great. For, for those listeners who are not familiar with the concept of red pill, what, what does that refer to exactly? In, in its most basic form, there was a movie called The Matrix that, was, that came out years ago. And Morpheus, the, one of the main characters, offered Neo, who was the hero of the story, the option of living in The Matrix, which represented the fake society, or what's called taking the red pill, which would take him down a rabbit hole of truth and... Uh, a more rabbit hole of truth that's kind of like behind the curtain of what's really going on. So over the years, that metaphor has been applied to many different ideas and genres. And in the the male-female world, it comes to refer to a a philosophy, or they they like to call it what's called a praxeology um, of basically rules and definitions that define how men really are and how women really are. And it's not very pretty, if you ask me, and it's not very relationship-oriented. Many people flock to the red pill because they're looking for uh, solutions to serious problems that they're having, which is fair, which is good. You know, There's a lot about the red pill that is very uplifting for men to kind of get them back on their feet. And But when it comes to the male-female dynamic, I always felt that it wasn't honest and it wasn't accurate, and it was looking at things from a negative eye and kind of discouraging men from pursuing long-term committed relationships, pursuing discouraging men from being husbands and fathers, and painting women oftentimes in a negative light. And I didn't like that. Not just because I, in general, don't like that, but because I felt that it wasn't accurate. And that if we shifted the way we see things just a little bit, we can learn to see the positives and the beauty about each other and how what the red pill defines as negative is actually a strength that can be brought to our relationships. I got married late in life. I was 45. I had some issues. I was enjoying those issues quite a bit, as I recall. When I was single, I had married friends. I would not visit their homes. I found their lives to be pathetic and depressing. Now that I'm married, I have no single friends. I find their lives to be meaningless and trivial experiences. In both cases, I believe I was correct. Whichever side of marriage you're on, you don't get what the other people are doing. I can't hang out with single guys. If you don't have a wife, we have nothing to talk about. 
You have a girlfriend? That's wiffle ball, my friend. You're playing paintball war. I'm in Afghanistan with real loaded weapons. Married guys play with full clips and live rounds. This is not a drill. Single guy sitting on a merry-go-round blowing on a pinwheel. I'm driving a truck full of nitro down a dirt road. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that you haven't really had much exposure to the ideas of Thomas Sowell before you met me. Is that I correct? Um, well, you know, to be honest, over the last seven years, I've seen lots of Thomas Sowell's uh, clips on YouTube and in shorts. I've watched some lengthy videos of his. Very, very, very impressed. Now, one thing that what I noticed with you, especially listening to some of your previous podcasts, is that my exposure is minuscule compared to the wealth of, I mean, you mentioned something like you wrote 47 or 42 books or something like that. Unbelievable, you know? And so I had seen a bunch of stuff when it came to economics and maybe some stuff on racism, you know, Candace Owens likes to quote him and some other people. Um, so I had seen all that. I knew he was a genius. So I wasn't surprised when you mentioned that, but, but that is that in general, you, you've obviously brought a tremendous flourishing of his knowledge out to the public. I could spend the rest of my life teasing out his ideas in various ways. Now, one of the reasons that I invited you on the show is because I came across a story in one of Sowell's books about the two farmers working one plot of land. And I don't think Sowell intended that as any type of metaphor for marriage. I really think he was just talking about economics and inputs and outputs and kind of, you know, dry stuff. But to me, it really sprung out of the pages like, oh, my God, this is a metaphor for marriage. This is why people get married. This is why they've been getting married for you know thousands of years, oh, yeah. because they, they decide that it's a better way to work the land. Beautiful. And so I, I know you did read it, right? For in, in I preparation did. For this. What, yes, what do you think sir. about that as a metaphor? Do you, do you feel like it resonates? Um, I think it's, it's terrific. You know, on on, on many levels, I think it's very accurate. I mean, the idea that what I was looking for in the story was actually touched upon, which is the idea that two people don't just create double one person, they create more than two individuals could create together. So it's like, I believe I got that right. Is that correct? He said, it's not just that you, when you have two people there, it's not just that you double what one person can do, you actually create more than what Two individuals. More than double. Yes, more than more, double. Thank you. More right. than double. Thank more you. Than yes. Double. Right. And that is a very, very important point because, as you mentioned earlier, that marriage isn't just the, or that, 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 that we're not looking for just twice as much as I can do. Right. That's not really what marriage is about. It's, it's the idea that when, when a man and woman unite, they're creating a third entity, which is greater than the sum of the parts. Right? And I like to talk about this in terms of what marriage is. Marriage is something which exists, it's something that we create, and it's something that exists outside of me and you. It's this new thing called us. And I put us in quotation marks. And I just love the idea that soul really brings it into practical terms, because it's not just as, it, it, it is a spiritual concept, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But what I loved about 
Amasol is, 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 is always very utilitarian approach to things and very explanar, ex, explan, explanation of things. It's like it even works in the physical, like in the physical level, it also works. Two people can create, like you mentioned the idea of picking up a couch, right? In, in your thing, picking up a couch. So, so two people can, if, if it's only one person, they can't pick up the couch, right? And two people can pick up the couch. And it's not just that two people can pick up the couch, which is, it's now that, and I'm just going to add this to the metaphor, now they can create a home, right? So it's not just that they're able to move the couch, which would just be one plus one equals two. It's they've created something that's outside of them, outside of just moving the couch, they're creating an atmosphere, they're creating a space, they're creating an environment that then doubles down and inspires even greater connection, greater adventure, greater opportunities for that relationship to even grow further. Do you understand what I'm saying? hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I see it all the time in my marriage. I mean, we have four kids and we're, I mean, we're running around like crazy and the, the amount we're able to accomplish because we sort of divide and conquer is, is incredible. You know, um, I could be taking the two little ones to a gymnastics class and swinging by the supermarket on the way home to pick up the fish for dinner while my wife is practicing violin with the older two. I mean, the amount of things we can accomplish, we can never do this on our own. We couldn't do half as much. It's just amazing. Yeah, you can't do half as much. That's right. And and, and are you noticing also, so to take it to a a step step higher, the fact that it's it's not just about the how much you can accomplish and how much that is, but when you accomplish those things, you now have your relationship is better than it was before in 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 an exponential way. Because right? now you have healthy kids. Now you have well-rounded children. Now you've created a safe environment. And then there's the spiritual component too, masculine and feminine connecting. And that creates a reality which is greater than just one person and the second person adding their strengths together. You've you've built something brand new that was impossible to have individually, both in the physical plane, like you mentioned, but also in the emotional and spiritual plane as well. Now I make I make the claim, you know, before you came on the show that in the metaphor the land represents family. You know, that's the land that the two farmers are tilling and that man and woman come together to create a new family, children, grandchildren, and that that's sort of the, you know, raison d'être of of getting married, you know. Sure the reason that it exists, the reason for it to be. And, you know, I have trouble imagining if it weren't for that, what would be the glue <laughs> that would hold people together exactly? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And it's definitely something that I work with with my clients because I, I believe in what's called a developmental model of of relationships. And it's kind of my own... I have my own developmental model. And I believe that when when we're developmentally stuck in any area, it's going to cause a collapse of the entire energy. So for instance, and you probably are aware of this, have you ever met couples that are dating just too long? They're just dating too long, right? Dating has a rhythm to it with a crescendo. And if you stay, if you don't take the next step, 
you're going to collapse, right? How many times have you met couples that just never pulled the trigger and then they just, they, they were getting along, but somehow they just fell apart, right? Sure. Or couples who get married and delay having children, right? So, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a, no one's obligated to have kid, children on day one. But after a certain amount of time, if they're not taking that next step as a couple, friction starts coming into their relationship and challenges start hitting them. And like you said earlier, the glue that's holding that love together kind of gets gets challenged, you know, gets, gets you know, it, it can get weakened. So I believe that obviously building a family and having, and, and we can go further if you want at some point about the developmental model, but just at this point, this is kind of answering your question. I definitely believe that there are phases and stages of relationships and building a family with children is definitely a key component if possible, which for most people it is. Now, I'm sure you have clients. I would imagine that you have couples that have no plans to have children. Is that correct? Yeah. Like what is the plot of land that they're tilling when there's no potential, no plan to have children in the future? What, what is it exactly? Is it a, is it a house? Is it, you know, what, what are they, what are they building? Right, right. Now, now, you know, again, I, I want to be sensitive to people who can't have kids or, you know, certainly, you know, not having children is an option if that's just what you choose not to do. But it does come with unique challenges. Like you said before, I heard you say, there's no right answers. There are only trade-offs. I, I got you on that one because I heard you say that. <laughs> you're listening. I'm listening. Right? I can see you're a good listener. <laughs> so... So what we need to do, what I like to work with couples like that is we have to substitute the meaning and purpose and of, of children and family with something else. They, they, it, it's very hard for them just to exist in this plane of, it's just you and me, babe, right? You know that song? It's just you and sure. me, babe, you know? Yeah. It's hard to stay like that forever. You, it, it, Honey it, and chair, right? I hear something like that. I don't remember, <laughs> but... Yeah, maybe I you know I'm going to be putting that in this episode, right? <laughs> okay. like insert that in now that you've mentioned it. Yeah. So, um, we have to substitute for something else. You know, maybe it is they they start a business together and they're working on that full time. Maybe they start doing charity work. Maybe they adopt a child. Maybe they foster a child. Maybe they do something with their careers that's really meaningful to them. But couples, marriage needs a mission. So we have to put something in there to be that mission. Otherwise, you know, people get annoyed with each other and just go bonkers. You know, it's just you and me. It's like, it's very hard. You know, you have to, we have, we have a natural desire for purpose and meaning. And if we don't fill our lives with that, um, it's tough. I want to discuss my marriage. That's important. My marriage, or as it was known, the Oxbow incident. <laughs> I had a rough marriage. Uh, well, my wife was an immature woman, and um, that's all I can say. She, see if this is not immature to you. I would be home in the bathroom taking a bath, and my wife would walk right in whenever she felt like and sink my boats. <laughs> so, who makes the claim that? Our elites have been disparaging marriage for decades. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. 
Do you, do you agree with that? Do you, do you feel like society in general has been putting marriage down over the decades? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, you know, that's like, that's obvious as this, as it's daytime right now, you know, the question is why, you know, and there's a lot of interesting ideas about it. Obviously Marx in, you know, has his, if you look at the communist manifesto or he has his own ideas of what the utopian society should look like, right? I believe that there's in general in the world, a spiritual war that's always occurring. The purpose of men and women coming together represents the unification of God and humanity, okay, which is the ultimate purpose of creation. So God created the world in order for him, God, to have a relationship with people and to come down and have a presence in the physical world. That is best represented in this world and accomplished through the connection between the feminine and the masculine, which represents two different aspects of God, which when we come together, and including our most intimate ways, but not just that, in all of our ways, through marriage, through learning to get along, men and women, learning to have a beautiful connected relationship, this is the unification of the highest spiritual infinity, which is God, into the physical, lowest physical mundane world, which is this physical world. And so there is a battle that's always going on in creation between holiness and not holiness, the opposite of that. And marriage is one of the holiest unities that could, the holiest institutions that could possibly have been created, because right? this is the, the house, so to speak, through which the masculine and feminine really come together. And so I believe that the war on marriage is like a direct shot on, on this world turning into a holier, more spiritual, more perfect place. And that's unfortunately, that's where I believe a lot of this is coming from. That there's, and even if we get into things like, um, you know, the confusion today about genders and all these other topics, right? This is, you know, you could have so many things that are um, confusing to regular to people, right? But it's amazing to me that in the most simplistic concept that people understand, I mean, when you look at a person, there's you don't know. There's so much you don't know when you look at a person. You don't know if they're smart. You don't know if they're athletic. You don't know if they're kind. You don't know if they're funny. But you know one thing. There's one thing that you for sure know, whether they're a boy or a girl, that you know. Right? That is the most basic information reality that we know about a person. Comes along this movement it tackles the complete pot shot, you know, at the most basic foundational understanding that we have about reality. And it's saying, huh, that which you clearly see in front of, <laughs> that which you clearly see in front of your eyes is not really true, right? And in what aspect are they talking about? In the most foundational and if the foundation of what it means to be a person in terms of your self-identity, right? And not just that, if you take it back to what I said earlier, this is the 
connection between the infinite and the finite, this represents the dynamic, which is the energy that drives the spiritual world, part of the purpose of creation. So it's like, what a incredible, um, I don't want to use the word attack, but let's just for the sake, lack of a better word right now, what an incredible attack on our sense of holiness and spirituality in the world than to mm. come along and say the most basic foundational element of what it means to be a person we're going to undermine. They just have no idea what they're walking into. I can't <laughs> wait. I don't, I don't wish this on anybody. When, but when the gay divorces start coming in, they're, they're really going to step back, I think, being like, what the hell did, were we wishing for here? <laughs> you know? I could have sent him a card on his deathbed. I didn't... <laughs> It really because, wasn't worth that. Because they can't. And that was their big thing. I can't go and say goodbye when they're dying. But uh, that's if you make it. But it's literally like, as far as marriage is working, that's like the sperm making it to the egg. Yeah. You're saying. It, it, dude, it's facts. Most of them don't work. And then you got to start all over again. Just bust it, you know? Yeah. I don't know how it's going to work. With because it usually sides for the women, but when you got two dudes, like how's how is that gonna work out? Right. You know what I'm saying? I guess it works out for whoever's making more money. This is classic, like how I talk on the podcast. <laughs> I just get into it and then I realize, oh hey, I'm a moron and I didn't read up on this. <laughs> how is that gonna work out? Well, God I'll tell you it's gonna work out. <laughs> the gay dude, the gay dude who's not doing shit is going to get all this stuff and be like, oh, I'm used to a certain lifestyle, right? And then the gay guy who's killing it, he's going to go back to the studio apartment, calling it right now, calling it right now. It's going to be horrible. You know, what I find fascinating about this whole topic is the speed at which it has entered our lives. You know, 10 years ago, none of us could have predicted that we'd be here now. Oh, my in this gosh. Place. Correct. Just, just 10 years ago, which is just a blink of an eye. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I, I talk about earlier about the slippery slope mm -hmm. and how, you know, just eight years ago, gay marriage was made a possibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here we are eight years later dealing with all kinds of unexpected manifestations of changing things. And, you know, you know, Sowell makes the argument that you know, the, the, the laws and rules and customs and traditions of marriage have evolved over centuries based on the differences between men and women. And to apply those rules to same-sex couples is like using the rules of baseball to play football, uh -huh. which I think is a, is a great metaphor. What, what are your thoughts about, you know, gay marriage and, and you know, do you, have, do you have gay clients or, you know, what are your thoughts in general about that whole subject? That marriage, by definition, is a conservative traditional construct. It had certain rules, and it 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 runs according to certain roles that people play, certain responsibilities. And if you want a successful marriage, so if you want an actual thing called a marriage, you have to play by its rules. If you don't play by its rules, so let's say say you have an open marriage or polyamorous marriage, or maybe we can extend it to gay marriage. You're not playing by its rules. So don't be surprised if it doesn't function the way it's intended. 
don't be surprised if you know the the intersexual dynamics the relationship the respect the love the commitment the fidelity the respect that marriage uh, encourages doesn't really materialize in these other manifestations or these other permutations of what people are calling marriage today. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, in a way, you're taking the same position that Sowell is taking, which is that marriage is a very particular set of rules and you can't a- apply them to other things. It, they won't necessarily work. So I, I, I basically agree with that. I mean, you know, my biggest problem with gay marriage when it was proposed was that I didn't really have a problem with it per se. I, I just felt like it, by redefining marriage to be sort of anything that anybody wants, it it created a slippery slope. I'm a big believer in the law of unintended consequences. Oh, yes. You know, in my mind, it's the one law that can never be repealed. And the slippery slope is is a corollary of that, that you never know where something is going to lead. And I, I make the argument earlier in the in my monologue that the whole you know trans movement is a result of the legalization of gay marriage just eight years ago, and that it led to that. I don't, I can't really prove that, uh-huh. but I feel that it's true, and I feel that we're that more more things are coming that oh, we yes. can't predict. Um, you talked about polyamory, polyamory, you know, polygamy. I think is is next. Um, there's a lot of things going on with. Ch- children right now that I don't really want to talk about here, but I think that 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 could be next. But when you married a long time, see, in the beginning of a relationship, you're in the do no wrong phase, right? Whatever you do is cute. It's sweet. And then we've crossed over. I'm in the do no right. I'm in the do no right. (laughs) You know, I just have to accept it. I have to just know. Here's an example. Here's an example. I'm walking through. She's watching TV. And I'm walking through, and I offer. I say, oh, I'll get you some popcorn. I know she likes popcorn. And I offer. I'll get you popcorn. To which she she says, all right, but uh, bring enough. She's already pissed off. She's already pissed off at me. (laughs) She'd rather have no popcorn than not enough popcorn. Yeah. I'd be curious what your views are on this whole concept of the slippery slope. And, you know, in particular, how it operates within a marriage. Is there a slippery slope in a marriage? I would definitely say yes, yeah, definitely. And, and unfortunately, if you, if, you, if you take a look at it from the macro level, what's happening today, and, and if we just look at it from even from heterosexual marriage situation, relationships, laws, as Thomas Sowell said, like laws that were intended for one scenario are kind of being used for others. And then you have to be very careful of who and what is making these judgments and why they're doing it. So for instance, let's just say uh, child support, alimony, divorce courts, no-fault marriages, no-fault divorces, rather. These were all done with good intention to, as Sowell says, to protect women from their investment, from losing out on their investment. If, let's just say, by middle age, a 48-year-old man decides to just leave his wife and children and go find himself a trophy wife, as you spoke about earlier. Um, Good, good. There's nothing wrong with protecting women. Everybody is on board with that, right? 
unfortunately, what's happened today, because of the changing times and changing circumstances, what we're seeing is that, first of all, there's a tremendous abuse of these laws. Okay, so there's a lot of abuse that's going on that people are, you know, claiming monies that shouldn't necessarily be there, or they're utilizing it in ways that don't make sense. Like there was a a famous actor recently that had that was paying two hundred thousand dollars a month in child support, not alimony, in child support. I mean, I think I, I have six kids. If I paid more than a thousand dollars a month for my kids, I'd be surprised. So here's this man who, and he was the judge evaluated him on his previous year's earnings, which was at a time when he had just got this major contract for something, which only lasts a year or two, you know? So in a year afterwards, he's making, you know, $100,000 a year or $500,000 a year, and he's going to pay $200,000 a month. This is an abuse of this situation, you know? And so what's happening is that men are waking up to this situation and many are just saying, okay, well, what started out as a reasonable law that's written in the 60s to protect women has now unintendedly has become the reason why men are choosing not to get married in the first place. So marriage rates are dropping. More and more men are checking out. Women trust men even less because men are walking around saying, I don't want to support you. I don't want it, this and that. And what's happening is it's becoming a division between men and women, which is becoming devastating to the to the, to the family, to the family unit. Who would have known? You know, originally these laws were put on the books to protect marriage and protect women, protect each other, right? And now, through years and years of abuse, choosing not to rewrite rewrite any of these laws, they're becoming the hammer through which marriage is being destroyed. We used to argue and fight, and we finally decided we'd either take a vacation in Bermuda or get a divorce. One of the two things. And we discussed it very maturely, and we decided on the divorce because we felt that we had a limited amount of money to spend, you know. A vacation in Bermuda is over in two weeks, but a divorce is something that you always have. You know? Do you, are you familiar with that dynamic that I'm referring well, to? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it reminds me of the Me Too movement. You know, when the Me Too thing started, um, I remember saying to my wife, you know, this is all well and good, and I, I really think that abusive men should be, you know, held to account, but I'm really worried that this is going to throw a wrench in the already very delicate relationship between men and women. And it's going to cause a disruption that's not going to be worth it. And I think that that has panned out. You know, I think the Me Too movement has really um, made men, you know, afraid to, to reach out, you know, to let's say there's a woman at work that they like, you know, to ask her out. Forget about oh, yeah. it. Ever. Forget you about can't do it. it. Totally. It's off the table. You know, I think back to when my father, was a doctor, you know, in the hospitals of New York, that, that was where doctors met their wives, you know, the nurses. Sure. You know, that was just where you met. Now that's considered completely taboo. Oh yeah. yeah. And you, you can't date anybody you work with. And I feel like that, you know, maybe it's caused, you know, maybe the solution has, has caused more problems than the problem. Oh, I would totally agree with what you're saying, you know, and I think that's a great example of unintended consequences, you know, and, uh, and I'm all in on the idea that, you know, abusive people, abusive men should, you know, be held accountable for sure. On one hand, on the other hand, you know, it's, it's just, they just came out recently with a study that said, you know, some enormous number percentage of men refuse to 
have lunch with, close the door with, like in their office, have private conversations with. They just, and you know, on, on a low key, even hire pretty women because they just don't want the they don't want the hassle. They don't want the threat. They don't want the you know. And you know, you, we can go on and on. If there was a if there was a woman who leaned more towards feminism here, she'd point fingers and call everybody call all these men losers, which is fair. You know? <laughs> but I'm not talking about the right or wrong of the situation. I'm just saying that has become the consequence, you know? Sure. And so it's- we keep digging ourselves around in the circle. Then they go after the men for saying, why didn't you do this? And then the men say, well, why aren't you doing that? And then everybody hates each other. It's terrible. Dude, let me ask you a question. Why the hell do people keep getting married? You know what I mean? Isn't anybody looking at the stats? What's it like? Three out of four marriages go right down the drain now? People, if you were going skydiving and they told you three out of four parachutes weren't going to open, you'd be like, yo, forget it. I'm not going. I don't like those odds. You know, I looked, I looked uh, to Japan and, you know, you hear studies about how, you know, m- men and women aren't getting together. Oh, they yeah. Sort of, you know, they don't, they have no desire. You know, you, you talk to the average 28 year old guy, you know, do you want a girlfriend? No, not really. It's unbelievable. You know, you know, and the birth rate has just plummeted and it's basically a dying society. Yeah. And you know, I see I mean, that slowly happening here as well. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, you're roughly my age. I mean, I, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if I wasn't chasing girls, like what was the point of life? You know what I right. mean? Like, <laughs> right? Like, the, what do you mean you don't want a girlfriend? Like, what else is there? Everything I do is just to get a girlfriend. Like, what right. are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right, we grew up, you know, in that generation where that was normal. You know that you just, you know, really wanted a girlfriend, and you know, you, you did what you, you had to do to get yeah. one. Yeah, totally. You know, if you pulled the plug on that, it's like, uh, you know, put me on an island somewhere by myself, and I'll just die a lonely death. You know what I mean? What's exactly. the point? <laughs> I talk a little bit about my own marriage earlier in the podcast, and it, specifically in the context of intermarriage. My wife is uh, a South Asian background; she's from India. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that you 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 heard that part. So, what what are your thoughts about intermarriage in general, and you know where does that fit into the whole picture for you, for you? Yes, yes. So, on some level, on a personal level, you know, I'm a Hasidic Orthodox Jew. So, you know, I'm I, I do believe that you know it's if possible that people should kind of stay within their own, just because for spiritual reasons, you know, that's the way. The world works best. Now, for practical reasons, on a practical level, I think intermarriage is very interesting here in the States. And I think the United States is actually a place where we see this um, to a large extent and, and how well it can work. You know, you see a gr- the great melting pot. And I happen to believe that that's actually quite beautiful. You see people of different races and different ethnicities and different nationalities getting together. And you know, there's a there's a big part of me that says, "Wow, that's that's really great." The sharing of cultures and the merging of different histories, and what an incredible way that people have learned to get along and share the most intimate connection and bond with total foreigners to their own family legacy. You know, so I think that's really incredible. On another level, as we were talking about a little bit earlier. I think that, like we said earlier, there's no right answers. There's only trade-offs, right? So what are we trading off? Oftentimes I see that people get stuck in this idea of compromise, right? Because like I'm working with a couple, one's Muslim and one's Christian. 
And the Muslim lady's not going to give up what she believes, that's for sure. Like that's not happening, you know? And so I'm dealing with with the man who's Christian and it's tough for him. You know, so what ends up happening is that if he chooses to allow her way of her culture as the primary culture in the home, he kind of loses his identity, you know, and then for a father to lose his identity as he's raising children is is very challenging, you know, because the children need to see from the father a strong sense of mission and purpose and culture and belief, especially a spiritual belief that's very, very important. And, you know, and then of course, then there's like things like holidays and it just, it can get challenging in that way where the intermarriage causes like an identity breakdown for both parties, because it's really hard being fully one identity and then also being fully another. And I'm not even talking about when there's an internal clash of ideas, but it's hard enough even just connecting to your own identity in, in this in this day and age and this society and being like really into whether you're let's just say you're Indian or let's just say you're you know African or let's say you're Caribbean or let's just say you're European. Hard. America is a place where we're secular by nature. So imagine now there's two identities in the home. What could end up happening is that there's a dilution to the point of not much is there. So it's got its own challenges, intermarriage. As, as beautiful as it is, it also has its challenges. I, people very often say to me, you know, you're anti-marriage. I am not anti-marriage. No. I know a lot of people who are happily married. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, some. Some. I was say- <laughs> All right, one guy. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, you know, wives, I was wondering if, uh, is your wife there? Uh, yes, I can. I can call her in. Just call her in. I'd love to meet her. Let me let me see if my wife is available. Okay, hold on. We text her. Meryl, your wife's Hi. name is Miriam, right? Yes, Miriam. So just give me a second. Oh, hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Nice to meet you. My wife will be here in one second. It's not for YouTube, huh? Wait, wait it's Zoom, but we're not on YouTube. It's audio only. It's audio only, sweetie. Okay. <laughs> She's still going to take a second to get ready. Just give me one second. <laughs> I forgot your name, ma'am. Priyanka. Oh, Priyanka. I was going to say, oh, that you were Bianca originally, but now you're yeah. Priyanka. <laughs> he picked I you up from the swimming that. pool, huh? Yes, he did. <laughs> what did he think? You didn't know how to swim or something? That was like the latest pickup line. Oh, you really didn't know how to swim. <laughs> I thought that part was a joke. Like, oh, if you want to learn how to swim, like. No. <laughs> I thought that was a very funny story. I'll have to clarify that in the story. <laughs> yeah. Because I thought I it was like a so nice. Creepy. I don't want to sound <laughs> so creepy. I'll teach you how to swim. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hi, Miriam. Nice Hi. So nice to meet you. You, you too. too. Your name, I'm, I'm Miriam. And what is your I'm name? Priyanka. Hi. Priyanka. Priyanka. And I'm Alan. Yes. yes. Hi. So uh, we we have four young children, four, six, nine, and 11. And uh, Priyanka, Priyanka <laughs> homeschools them all. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Big job, huh? Big job. Yeah. For sure. Nice. Yeah, we have six kids. So our oldest is 20, uh, 30 and our youngest is 15. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. So what do you have, two in the home now? 
Uh, two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. All right, all right. <laughs> Miriam, are you also like a therapist? I'm a somatic healer. Okay, gotcha. So, um, I do something with um, like the way I try to explain it is that emotions are energy in the body. And they're um, like, you know, people say, oh, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm this or that, and kind of stays up in the head, but they're actually emotions are energy in motion. So um, when we process them, they're actually as physical sensations in the body. So before even the brain knows that I'm sad or angry, there's a sensation in the body, like a clenching of the jaw, dropping of the stomach. When we start paying attention to it, we like go, oh, wow, that's really true. So when I work with women as part of the program and even one-on-one, that's how I, that's how I work with them. We don't just stay in the mind. I also take them into the body by asking questions. Like if there's a situation that happened, maybe they were angry at their husbands or something happened with their kids. Then I take them into their body to process it. And it's a much quicker um, way of processing things. Plus the, the emotions have um, messages for us. So we get to, um, dive into that. What is their body telling them? Because the mind sometimes can rationalize, oh, I shouldn't make a big deal of that, or that person didn't mean it, but the body's registering something else. So we always want to kind of dive into the body. Um, And even if there's anger or there's gook there or whatever, to process it in a way that's very honest for them, but they don't, they're not exploding on anyone. So um, that's, that's kind of what I do in my sessions. Now, does your work overlap with David's at all with in terms of helping couples in their marriages? Yeah. So we we have a couples program and then I work with the women for three of the sessions and sometimes more if they want more. That's the overlap. Sometimes we work together. Sometimes I work just by myself, you know, because I work with women, not just with marriage, but with health issues or career issues or parenting things. But um, with the marriage stuff, what's so nice about the program is that my husband's speaking to the husbands as well. Sometimes I'll have just women who come to me and they need marriage help, but their husbands aren't willing to get help. But we can still do a lot, a lot, because when one person changes in a relationship, so do the others, you know? So, um, yeah. You know, it's funny. Earlier in the podcast, I talked about how, you know, I've been very inspired by your husband's tweets. Mm. And at the beginning, I used to uh, forward them to my wife. <laughs> and, and, and at a certain point she was like, stop sending me. <laughs> now I thought they were so uplifting and so enlightening. And so, you know, and I was really surprised at first, like, why don't you want me to send them to you? So why don't you explain? Well, you know? they are very uplifting. It's true. <laughs> but the way the message I took from it was that he felt like I was lacking in those. And so he was telling me yes. you need to do this, or you of need to course. do that. I always tell, I, I never a lot, when, when people tell me that they're forwarding to their wives, I always say, that's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if you want, you can encourage your wife to follow me if you'd like, you know, gently encourage her if you think, but never for, you know, <laughs> that's not a good habit to <laughs> for the exact reason that you expressed. Yeah. David, do you feel like you speak mostly to the men in, in marriages or, to, or do you feel like equally for the men and the women? I try to every day put something out that's that goes towards men. Um, and then, but I also try to put out every day something for women. Um, I, I think my message to men is different than that of women, which is more responsibility oriented, more geared towards owning the relationship, owning our feelings, you know, being more of a 
guide in the relationship kind of at a higher level. And the tweets I have more towards women has more to do with creating a loving environment in the home and being more sensitive to what's happening in in the house. And I feel like that's a good combination for them both. I used to joke with uh, Priyanka, and this is this is a true story. I used to say, I feel like this David guy has a camera in our house. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be going through a certain issue and I'd be like, darn it, he just tweeted exactly about that issue. How does he know what's going on? It's true, right? That's I really, I really, I was thinking, camera, right. where's, the, where's the microphone? <laughs> that's so funny. You know what? It's going on in everyone's home. That's why, yeah, including that's ours. Right. So like say, I say that, you know, I'm not magic or anything like that. I've just made all the mistakes first. <laughs> and so then I tweet about them and everything's, wow, he really understands me. No, 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 actually. <laughs> Bianca, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, you know how Google does that, where it like sends yes. you these like specific things. It was like that for like a period <laughs> of time where we would always, he would always send, this is when he was sending me the tweet. So I was like, why are you sending me this? <laughs> <laughs> I did nothing wrong. It's all <laughs> And that, and it's always on the premise that men and women are different, you know? And so kind of understanding who we are and that's just so important. Oh yeah. Yeah. So much of our, so much of what I do with couples is just kind of helping them reconnect to their role in the relationship and de-escalating false, you know, de-escalating emotions that are spur, spawned on by complete false beliefs. You know, like a typical one that I have for, for many men is, you know, my wife never initiates intimacy when she never initiates sex. That's something I get quite often from and now that's not the case in every household but it tends to be the majority of you know and entire relationships can be torn down because a man is walking around upset that his wife doesn't initiate and i had this one client where you know he was really at ends with his wife like he just was ready to pull the plug and I said to him, okay, okay, I hear, I hear, you know, of course I create a safe space for him to share his feelings and all this stuff. And I said to him, okay, well, when you do initiate, when you initiate, I said, do you enjoy being with your wife? He's like, oh yes, she's great. And I said, well, um, when you initiate, does she respond well? Oh yes, yeah, she's very sensitive. Whenever I initiate, she's always there for me. So I said, okay, so let me get this straight. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, when you start the process, she responds and she rarely, if ever says no, he's like, yes. So I said, you're having as much great sex as you could possibly want. Is that basically correct? He said, yeah, I guess if you look at it that way, yes. <laughs> I said, I said, so you're willing to tear your whole relationship apart because you're the first one that has to make the move. <laughs> he's like, well, you know, I never thought about it quite like that, you know? And it was just very funny because, you know, I explained to him that that's just, first of all, that's spiritually the the natural role of the masculine versus the feminine, just even from a spiritual perspective. But we talked about, you know, he had these thoughts in his head that it must mean that she doesn't love him, that she doesn't want him, that she doesn't desire him. And I explained to him that, you know, many women don't have what is typically called desire. Instead, what they have is what's called arousal. And which is the case of his wife, right? So she doesn't she doesn't walk around thinking to herself, wow, I'd really like to have sex with my husband. Most many women don't 
feel that, have that naturally. Instead, they are responsive to men. So if a man expresses his desire, you know, many women in healthy relationships where she feels safe will respond back with arousal. And that's exactly what you actually want in a relationship. As a matter of fact, I've had cases where it's the opposite. And that itself, there's no there's no right answers. There's only trade-offs. That itself has come with a whole host of problems where the men actually don't look forward to having sex. They're always afraid their wife's going to come in and demand them to perform and demand them to do X, Y, and Z. And then when he doesn't or he's tired, women take rejection in this horrible, horrible way. And that blows everything up. And it works better this way, you know? And once I got him straight on that, just recognizing the role of a man and women and how natural it is, the rest of the session was, were, you know, smooth sailing it was really easy. So a lot of, a lot of counseling, at least the counseling that I do is realigning men and women with the roles that function best in marriage. Yeah. And it's then really I controversial. It, it's become such a controversial thing now to even say what you just said. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it is. It is very controversial. And, um, Sometimes I do hit rough patches, but I can tell you that by the time they get to me, <laughs> they're usually willing to take almost any advice if things will work out for the better. Yeah. You're like the ER doctor, <laughs> yeah. right? Triage. Yeah. You do the triage work. When some communities offer pre-marriage counseling, which I think is like amazing. I mean, right. to have that support before you go into a marriage, oh, yes, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you 100%. You offer that? Is that something that you you do? Well, yeah, I mean, I work with couples before they get married, as well as I don't call it officially premarital counseling, although I probably should. Um, but I do work with couples to get them to get married, like to get them to the ring. You know, I often find that people, one of the phrases that I say all the time is that long term relationships lead to marriage level problems without the fr- framework of marriage mm-hmm. to hold them together. Mm-hmm. And I meet a lot of people in that that dynamic today where they're perpetually in these long-term relationships and they start fighting about regular things that married people fight about. And then they don't want to give each other the ring. They don't, they, the guy doesn't want to give her the ring because he's nervous because he sees these quote unquote red flags. I'm just like, red flags? Like that, like welcome <laughs> to marriage, bro. Like, that's, what are you talking about? That's not a red flag. You see what's going on in my house. You want to see red flags. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, what are you talking about? But but people take dating for so long that, you know, so yeah, I, and, and and I know my wife works with, with people like that too. I think yeah. the mixed messaging from the media is a big problematic, you know, like, I think part of why the tweets resonate is you feel not alone. You're like, oh, this actually is not so uncommon. Like, there's nothing wrong here. Right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like to normalize. That's, that's a, a huge part of, healing is just realizing that you're not the only one going through this mm-hmm. and that your behavior is normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Alan earlier about my developmental model of relationships. And I always tell one of my most common tweets is I say to men age 40 to 45, like if you're struggling in your marriage now, really confused as to where the love went, you're right on schedule. You know, like you're right exactly where you're supposed to be, because this is what happens to 40 to 45 year old men. And don't despair. Mm -hmm. We can work through this and you can get to the other side. 
don't look at this as like your opportunity or your don't look at this as now you have to pull the plug. No, the opposite. Mm-hmm. Because work through these issues, you're going to have another 20, 30, 40 years of a much better relationship. So mm-hmm. simple message like that, which normalizes the normal pain that we go through in growing in relationships is helpful. We're coming to the end of our time, but I want to get both of your takes on one of my favorite Thomas Sowell quotes. So I'd like to read it to you. Thomas Sowell said this, he said, one of the most foolish and most dangerous things one can do is to take love for granted instead of nurturing it and safeguarding it as the prize jewel of one's life. Yeah. So that goes along with what I said, like every morning I'll wake up and I have a little whiteboard by my bed with like, you know, a colorful marker and I'll say, never take anything for granted. And then I'll just, when I say that phrase, like just so much comes to mind. So I'll just jot down as much as I feel like jotting down. And then again, including some things about my husband, and then I'll say it to him. I'll make sure that he knows how he's getting it right. What do I appreciate? And um, it's so true. Love is so important. And we never know with life how long things are going to be, you know, so never if we never take anything for granted, we're just so appreciative. Comes normal. And I don't regret it. I'm 37 years old, you know, and I like I like living the lifestyle that I, you know, that I lead. I don't want kids. I don't want to get married. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do any of that. (laughs) We need more like you out there. But people, but women know, are afraid to say that a lot of times. They don't, you know, because other women say, oh, you'd be a great mom. No, I wouldn't. I would be a terrible mother. Right. I would be a bad mother. I wouldn't, I don't even like other people's kids. Right. I'm, I'm funny. You're, you're talking about the original. And, and I think that it actually, I think this quote is even more important than ever now because the whole institution of marriage is being kind of attacked, as we mentioned earlier, you know, and there's a deprioritization of relationships between men and women and family. And, you know, we somehow in today's world where we can watch all these YouTube videos and we see all these accomplishments that people are doing and whether it's professional success or any other type of, you know, choice that we've made, it's easy to get derailed and lose focus that are, you know, the first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. And what God's basically telling us is that the purpose of why I created you is for that relationship, is for the love that Thomas Sowell is referring to, is for the um, family. That's the foundation of everything moving forward. There's no point in inventing electric cars if there's no kids that you're going to put in the back seat, you know? And so we have to keep, I think that that quote is even truer as time moves forward, that we all have to maintain what the prize is. Unfortunately, you see today on these websites, you know, marriage is dead, don't bother getting married. And what I surprises me even most is that half these articles are written for women, by women. Shocking. I mean, if there's one force in nature that I was convinced would always be family oriented and pro relationships, it's women. And yet today we're seeing more and more content coming out that discourage women from having relationships with men. And and it goes both ways, but I'm just sharing that it's even more shocking to me when I see it coming from women. So I think it's really important that we recalibrate and we recognize, hey, wait a second, this is our biggest asset. 
this is our biggest mission. This is our biggest purpose, you know, and that we can never forget that it is the jewel. It's the, that's the jewel of our lives. Yeah. David, Miriam, Priyanka, thank you for joining me on the Genius Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure meeting all thank of you. you. Very nice meeting you. Thank you. Nice meeting you too. Try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come. To this conclusion, love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage Dad was told by mother You can't have one You can't have none You can't